Well, good morning. How sweet it is to sing God's praises with you all this morning. I could honestly just do that all morning long. And uh, Before we start, I just have one announcement really quick. Um, we're going to push back beach baptisms. They were supposed to happen this upcoming Sunday, so a week from today. Uh, but we're going to move them to September 4th. Uh, we just want to choose a time that uh, the, when the most people can attend within our body, and we'll have more details probably next week about food and what to bring and all of that stuff. Um, all right. If you have a Bible with you, uh, will you please open it to John chapter 3? Uh, and if you didn't bring one this morning, there are blue Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. We'll be on page 518. Uh, there's a lot I want to unpack and get into this morning, so will you bow your heads with me, uh, and then we'll jump right in. Our Father and our God, come and speak to us. Spirit of the living God, comfort, console, clarify, correct, convict, and convert. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Appearances can be deceiving. Like a brand new sports car loaded with all the bells and whistles you've gone into debt to purchase, which quickly becomes a worthless piece of junk that you can't get rid of fast enough. Or like a promotion into upper-level management, a company with all of the perks that go along with it, which suddenly exposes you to the corporate underbelly riddled with corruption. Or that clean-cut neighbor with the perfect house, the perfect spouse, and the perfect kids, who's placed into handcuffs one night and taken away for systematically abusing his wife. Appearances can be deceiving. What you see doesn't always correspond to reality. And even more to the point, appearances can be self Deceiving. It is entirely possible for someone to think themselves to be a Christian and be entirely self-deceived. Now, I'm not talking about frauds. I'm not talking about hypocrites. I'm not talking about false teachers. I'm talking about good people who have been so beguiled by their own definition of what it means to be a Christian that they have convinced themselves they are one. I'm a church member. I've been serving in the children's ministry for years. I was baptized when I was eight, asked Jesus into my heart when I was five. All my friends are Christian. I married a Christian. Even my parents are Christians, for goodness sakes. But you see, appearances can be deceiving. Self-deceiving. And you may say, well, Josh, are you really proposing yourself as the final judge of who really is and is not a Christian? Not in a million years. That requires a divine quality, omniscience, the state of knowing everything. Now, you and I don't know everything. We are not omniscient. But there is one 
who does know everything. There is a possessor of this omniscience that in turn places him beyond any possibility of deception by appearance. And it is because of this, he and only he alone makes judgments about who is and is not a true Christian. It's why this morning I want to set before you a different kind of question. It's unusual, I admit, probably one that you've never been asked before, but the answer to this question exposes your true status as a professing Christian. Does Jesus Christ believe in you? Does Jesus Christ believe in you? Now, I know that that's not the typical question you're frequently asked. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And although you may be quick to answer that, yes, of course, I believe in Jesus Christ, that does not guarantee your place in the kingdom of God. But here is the question that does. Does Jesus Christ believe in you? Do you know the answer to this question? There is no reason you shouldn't and every reason that you should. Which is why it is my aim now to use our time together to show you how Jesus himself addressed a person entirely self-deceived. A person deceived of his status as a believer who would spend eternity with God. But before you merge onto the freeway, you need to first get up to full speed. The on-ramp to John chapter 3 starts in chapter 2, verse 23. So John 2, verse 23. Now when he, being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now we read about this thing in Scripture, and our first reaction is to say, Yes! Success! Many believed in his name. That is, they believed in the name of Jesus. There is no indication here in the text that these people were pretending. They're not pretending. There's no clue here that John is somehow denying their belief. He's not denying their belief. The text clearly states these are people believing in the name of Jesus. And no one would, could, or should ever deny this. But here now is the much more Revealing thing, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. It's a play on words in the original text, you see. The Greek verb here, entrust, can be translated like this. Jesus did not commit himself to them. Or better yet, but Jesus, on his part, did not believe in them. Their faith was not reciprocated. They believed in his name, but he was not believing in them. Now, it's my guess that some of us may be taken a bit aback by this. I mean, Jesus is obligated to believe in you if you express some sort of belief in him, right? He's got to reciprocate. It's his job. And yet here, Scripture reveals an unsettling truth that not all faith is saving faith. Jesus did not believe in their belief. He did not have faith in their faith. You may ask, but Jesus, how can you do that? 
These are people believing in your name. Keep reading verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, you don't know all people. You don't know what is in the heart and mind of any person. But the Old Testament tells us that there is one who does. King Solomon says that God alone knows perfectly what is in the heart and mind of every person. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And what is true of God the Father must also be true of Jesus Christ. He is, after all, God incarnate. And this is why, my dear friends, that Jesus' assessment of your faith, because of his omniscience, far outweighs your own. Verse 25 continues, He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In a book that stresses the importance of witness, we're told that in verse 25, Jesus did not need any witness about man. And while you and I, we are in desperate need to hear a constant witness about Jesus Christ, he is in no need of any witness at all where we're concerned. He knew what was in man. So what does Jesus know about these believers in whom he does not believe? Their faith, though an actual faith, not a false faith, not a hypocritical faith, it was not an adequate faith. Their faith was insufficient. It was a faith in the fantastic, a faith that viewed Jesus as a great teacher, a prophet, a miracle worker with the power to provide health and wealth, but not in Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Savior for people whose greatest need is to be saved from their sin and reconciled to God. They failed to recognize who Jesus Christ really is which is why Jesus does not believe in them. And it reminds us of something that we must never forget. Your faith does not save you. Your faith does not save you. The object of your faith saves you. And if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who willingly gave himself and died in the place of guilty human beings and was raised from the dead on the third day, then you can be certain that no matter what else you believe about Jesus, he will not believe in you. They believed in his name because of what they saw, but he was not believing in them because of what he knew. Not all faith is saving faith. Appearances can be deceiving. That's why I'm asking you the question, does Jesus Christ believe in you? Don't appeal to your baptism. Don't appeal to a prayer you prayed when you were 10 years old. Don't appeal to your membership here at Mosaic Church. Does Jesus Christ believe in your belief? He knows what you believe. You say, well, how can I know if Jesus believes in me? Look now as we move into chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Did you catch that? 
As Phil said last week, the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verse numbers or even broken up into paragraphs. It's easy to miss if you just start in verse 1. So take a step back and we'll read 25 through 1. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. Now there was a man. It's a hint, right, that what you're about to read regarding this man, Nicodemus, is an example of the very phenomenon you just read about. A believer in whom Jesus was not believing. But this man, my goodness, this man, he was not just any ordinary person like you and I. This is a person who had every reason to assume that he would spend eternity with God. This is because he was a descendant of Abraham. And beyond that, he's a Pharisee. He made a vow in front of many witnesses to follow every single letter of the law, each and every commandment of the Old Testament. And what's more, he's a member of the highest ruling body in all of Israel, the Sanhedrin, one of 71 men who had jurisdiction over every Jew on earth. And if somehow that wasn't enough, in verse 10 we learn that Nicodemus is a person of unparalleled scholarship and learning. At this time in Israel, no one ascended any higher than Nicodemus, morally, ethnically, or spiritually. So how tall would you stand if someone sized you up with Nicodemus? In my case, it's like a molehill next to Mount Everest. But notice what this man does. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is exceedingly impressed by the signs he has witnessed. And we know this because uh, how lavishly he heaps compliments upon Jesus. He refers to Jesus as rabbi, a term of deep respect for a skilled teacher. And coming from Nicodemus, this is a very generous compliment. But not only does he call Jesus rabbi, he says that Jesus has obviously come from God, empowered by God. Look at the signs he's performing. Look at all the miracles. There's no reason to believe here that Nicodemus is lying or trying to flatter Jesus. But now, isn't this an expression of faith? To say that Jesus is a teacher come from God. It most certainly is. But let me ask you then, is this belief sufficient to save? A faith that views Jesus as a teacher come from God himself. A belief in Jesus as a worker of miracles with a power that could only be sourced in the divine. Well, take a look at something that might provide you with a bit of a clue. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. This is the original Nick at night. Now, is, is there any significance to this besides it being an accurate historical detail? Is this suggesting that Nicodemus was sneaking through the back alleys of Jerusalem late at night, just hoping that nobody would see him with Jesus? Or maybe he's hoping for some uninterrupted conversation with Jesus during Passover week, which would be nearly impossible during the daytime. I mean, 
Either or both of those things could be true, but what I'm more convinced of is the way that John, the author of this book, intends it. Throughout the Gospel of John, the concept of night and darkness is used as a metaphor for moral and spiritual darkness. Now, I could give you many examples of this in the book of John, but perhaps the most obvious of these is this. Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. Having just washed the feet of each of his disciples, he says, One of you is going to betray me. The one to whom I give this piece of bread after I have dipped it in the dish. Jesus then dips the bread into the dish and then gives the bread to Judas. Satan then enters Judas and Judas leaves immediately to carry out his plans. And the text says, and it was night. Not merely a historical detail. It's John's way of saying that Judas went out into utter spiritual darkness. So Nicodemus seeks Jesus out at night, but his own night was much darker than he knew. You can hear how confident and assured Nicodemus is. He is absolutely convinced that he's right. And what makes it even worse? He's proud. We know! Me, me and my boys, me and the Pharisees, me and these guys in the Sanhedrin, Jesus, we, we know who you are. We know that you're a teacher come from God. But he doesn't know, does he? And we're about to see just how wrong Nicodemus really is. Jesus Christ is not a teacher come from God. Jesus Christ is God who has come to teach. But Nicodemus, you or nobody else will ever realize who Jesus truly is if you're left to your own powers of observation. You can't get there by human strength, skill, intelligence, religion, or morality. The fact is something outside of you must happen to you. So who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus Christ? It's one of the most important questions you'll ever answer in your life. What is your answer? Not what your family says. Not what other pastors you listen to say. Not even what your own church believes about him. Who is Jesus Christ to you? There's, there's a whole bunch of different Jesuses that people believe in, aren't there? There's Republican Jesus, who he's, he's against tax increases, and he's not too keen on activist judges. And he's all about family values and owning firearms. There's Starbucks Jesus, who only drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, only wears Birkenstocks, drives a hybrid, and goes to every music festival he can. There's Touchdown Jesus, might be my favorite, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of every Super Bowl. There's Feel Good Jesus, which we see a lot. It's great for Christmas specials. And greeting cards. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. But I think the most common one that we see is gentle Jesus. He's meek. He's mild. He's got high cheekbones, long, flowing blonde hair. He walks around barefoot. He's always wearing a sash and he looks extremely German. But let me tell you, believing in any of these Jesuses will not save you. 
They are not who Jesus Christ really is. And in Nicodemus' opening sentence here, he reveals who he thinks Jesus is. Nicodemus believes in the good teacher, Jesus. And it is why now in verse 3 that Jesus doesn't pause to say, Why, thank you, Nicodemus. How very kind of you. I appreciate you calling me a good teacher. It means a lot coming from you. No. No, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus, are, are you even following the conversation here? I mean, who said anything about being born again? But Jesus knows What's in all people, remember? He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He doesn't reply to Nicodemus' words. He reads Nicodemus' heart like an open book. Jesus sees his self-assurance, so he cuts right to the chase. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Now this phrase, this born again, it's got to be one of the most misused expressions in all of Christianity. There was a man by the name of Charles Colson who was an advisor to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. Colson was later converted to Christ and wrote a book titled Born Again. And a few years later, President Jimmy Carter revealed that he was a born again Christian. And suddenly this phrase, born again, was everywhere in America. We're born-again Christians. I'm a born-again Christian. She's a born-again Christian. The problem with this, however, it's, it's like saying he's an unmarried bachelor. That is a three-sided triangle. All bachelors are unmarried. All triangles have three sides, and all true Christians are born-again. There is no such thing as a non-born-again Christian. To not be born again is to, by definition, not be a Christian. Now, Nicodemus would have heard Jesus say this, heard the phrase born again, and it wouldn't have made any sense. It completely shattered the Jewish belief at the time that one's salvation, one's status as a child of God was tied to racial identity. If you were a descendant of Abraham, you were guaranteed a place in the kingdom of God. It was their first birth that granted them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And they even believed that Abraham himself stood just outside the gates of hell to make sure that none of his descendants accidentally wandered in. But listen to what Jesus says here. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's a universal statement. No one can see the kingdom of God. That no one includes you and I. We are all a part of this no one. No one can see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. To be a Christian, you must be born again. And every time this phrase born again appears in the Bible, it is always in the passive tense. It can be literally translated to mean to be born from above, and it means that this is something that must happen to you. You can only be the recipient of it. You are entirely dependent upon God to accomplish it. There is nothing you can do to gain access into the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells you, you can't even see it. 
To belong to the kingdom of God, you must be born into it. Have you recognized this? Have you embraced this truth, this reality, that there is absolutely nothing you can do? You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't be a good enough person. You can't pray enough prayers. You can't bring yourself to salvation by any means of your own. Something outside of you must happen to you. You must be born from above. But Nicodemus, he, he doesn't get it. Right? So he, he responds to Jesus saying that, and he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You think he's speaking literally here? Jesus, do I need to experience some sort of physical rebirth? Maybe he's speaking wistfully here. Jesus, I, I know I need something radical, but a fresh start at this late stage in my life? How could anything be so dramatic? No, I, I think Nicodemus is speaking cynically here, sarcastically. A requirement to enter the kingdom of God? Yeah, right. It's totally absurd. What, you really expect a person to re-enter their mother's womb? But Jesus answers, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, we heard that earlier, unless one is born, we heard that earlier too, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus continues the conversation. He's elaborating on what he's told Nicodemus in verse 3. And now, some people have mistakenly suggested that this passage refers to two separate births. You must be born of water, physical birth, and you must be born of the spirit, spiritual birth. However, the, the text indicates that this is not two separate births, but rather a singular, unified event. It says, you must be born of water and the spirit, water and spirit, a single birth. Now, all kinds of alarm bells should be going off if you're well acquainted with the Old Testament like Nicodemus was. Jesus here is referring to Ezekiel 36 when God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's water and spirit, water and spirit, water to signify cleansing from all, all our impurities and spirit to signify the regeneration of the heart. It's a promise as old as the Old Testament. But Nicodemus, he was so deceived by his status as a child of Abraham, so assured by his own morality that it never once dawned on him that a profound transformation would be necessary to enter the kingdom of God. And your status, your performance, my friends, it, it cannot secure your place in God's kingdom. It is a lie that people of every generation have believed, that somehow by their own efforts, their own morality, their own religion, they can somehow make themselves fit for the kingdom of God. But Jesus addresses this very thing here in verse 6. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When humans reproduce, the result is a person who belongs to the earthly family, not to the family of God. As a human being, a person of the flesh, you are completely unable to create spiritual life either in yourself or in somebody else. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. And Jesus continues, Do not marvel at this, that I have said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, this is not the innovation of something new. It's not some new religion I have concocted. It's the revelation of something old in that Bible that you claim to love and believe. And this this being born again, it's such a powerful thing. Think about the wind. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We can't control or understand the wind, can we? It goes wherever it pleases. And although we can't understand it, its effects are undeniable. You hear the sound of the wind. You see the grass dance in the breeze. You hide from it during a ferocious hurricane or tornado. And so it is with the Spirit. You cannot domesticate him, you cannot comprehend him, but wherever he works, and in whom, whoever he works, the effects are unmistakable. When a person is made new by the Spirit of God, the effects are obvious. You don't have to force a Christian to obey. You merely appeal to their new nature. Something has happened to them. They've changed. They've been regenerated. And although they may be inconsistent in their obedience, their desire, the cry of their heart, is now to say yes to Jesus Christ. It's the unmistakable effect of being born again. So have you been born again? Does Jesus Christ believe In you, answer number one, only if you have been born again. Only if you have been born again. Think about the analogy, right? You didn't make any decision to be physically born. It just happened to you. So why then, Nicodemus, would you ever think that you possess the ability to make yourself spiritually born? Jesus says it's it's only a horizontal solution that will save you. You can't do it. God has to do it, and you can only be the recipient of it. And I love this next part. This is 100% my response. Nicodemus said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus, how can this be? You hear the exasperation in his voice. On what basis can God make unmerited sinners new? We're almost there to the answer. So in verse 10, before Jesus gives an answer, he gives an admonition that exposes. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
You can feel the sting of it, can't you? Are you the teacher of Israel? It suggests that Nicodemus is the leading theologian and scholar of his day. You have a question about the Old Testament? He's the guy you want to talk to. He had like, he's the guy with like 17 abbreviations after his name, you know? Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things, Nicodemus? You see, Nicodemus's inability to understand this, it has nothing to do with his intelligence, nothing to do with his lack of formal training. Jesus openly acknowledges him as the teacher of Israel. So, Nicodemus, though you can parse verbs and diagram sentences and translate terms, you're still missing something. God granted illumination. And without illumination from the Spirit, you will always be blinded by spiritual ignorance. Without illumination from the Spirit, you will never see the true meaning of the Scriptures. We see this in Luke 24. Then he, being Jesus, said to them, his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Even the disciples could not understand the Old Testament fully until Jesus opened their minds. And from cover to cover, Jesus here reveals that the Bible is all about him. It reveals his gospel. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that understanding the Old Testament as a book that points us to Jesus is really not an issue of scholarship, but of lordship. Jesus himself here is giving us his hermeneutic, his explanation on how to read and understand the Bible. And it reveals that no amount of study or theology will ever bring you to saving faith. Only God-granted illumination can do that. In verse 11, Jesus explains this impediment even further. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Did you catch that one there too? It's a parody of what Nicodemus said to Jesus earlier. Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And here, Jesus goes from using the word I to using the term we. But but who is this we that Jesus is speaking about? Maybe, maybe it's Jesus and his disciples. Maybe it's he and John the Baptist. Maybe Jesus and the prophets. Now, many scholars believe that this we Jesus is referring to is himself and God the Father. It's something we see throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus states time and time again, everything I say and everything I do is only what I've heard and seen my Father say and do. Jesus is, after all, the eternal word made flesh. So this we that Jesus is referring to here is the partnership that he and God the Father share in the outworking of salvation. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus, I've told you three times now and you won't believe it. You won't receive it. He's not only failing to understand what Jesus is saying, but he's unwilling to embrace it. So, 
When I was in the third grade, my favorite teacher of all time, Mrs. Caldwell, I remember raising my hand in class and asking, can I go to the bathroom? Her response, I'll never forget. I don't know, can you? She was teaching even then, teaching that there is a difference between asking a question beginning with the word can and one that begins with the word may. May seeks permission and can addresses ability. Jesus doesn't say you may not enter the kingdom of God. He says you can't. You don't have the ability to do so. And here in verse 11, in the original text, the word you that is used there is plural. So it reads more like this. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you people do not receive our testimony. So not only is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus here, but Jesus is referring to all those that Nicodemus represents. Every single human being, including you and I. Spiritually ignorant spiritually unwilling, and spiritually unable. Despite your religious status, your morality, your education, Nicodemus, you cannot overcome these impediments. You can't. Which means we can't overcome these either. If anybody had the ability to get it right, it was Nicodemus, right? Look at his resume. And yet he just like you and I can't get it right apart from a new birth. Jesus says, all right, think about it like this. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Implication, you won't. Nicodemus, if you cannot comprehend and are unwilling to believe what I tell you about the most basic thing, how a person enters into the kingdom of God, then there is no use in advancing the conversation to talk about this glorious kingdom when it's finally here. What's the point of trying to teach someone calculus when they can't understand basic addition and subtraction? Until you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, let alone see it. But there is one that has seen it. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is to say, that no one has ever climbed his way up into heaven, into the kingdom of God, and come back down to earth to reveal what he has seen and what he has heard. No one, except for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Now, do you want to know the truth about the kingdom of God? Something inside of you knows that there must be more than your current life. Living for a, a few fleeting pleasures only to die and be buried in the ground? Why is there a sense of something more deep within you? Do you want to know what life will be like when sin and all of its effects are forever banished? Do you want to know what life will be like when despair and devastation and death will be destroyed? When there are no more mass shootings, no more suicide bombings, no more racial injustices. When there are no more addictions, obsessions, or phobias. An absence of all neuroses and psychoses. When sexual exploitation will never again register in the minds of people with power. 
Do you want to know what life will be like when you spend eternity with God who is your Father? When all you ever experience is pure and holy love for and from all other people? Do you want to know the truth about life everlasting, resurrection life, real life prior to death and real life after death? Then you must look to Jesus and listen to him. He is the only one who brings you the absolute truth about the kingdom of God. He's the one you ought to be believing. And what you claim to know must always be submitted to what he says. Not because he somehow managed to ascend to heaven from a home here on earth and then descended back here to tell others of what he had seen, but because heaven was his home in the first place. And therefore, he alone possesses all there is to know about the kingdom of God. The most basic truths and the most sophisticated realities. How one enters the kingdom of God and what it will be like once you're in. And yet, apart from this new birth, Nicodemus, you and everybody else, you are spiritually ignorant, spiritually unwilling, and you are unable to believe this. Which brings us to the very heart of the issue. The kingdom of God is not for people who proudly esteem themselves as self-sufficient. That's why Americans have such a hard time understanding the gospel, I think. Entrance into the kingdom of God requires a denial of your self-sufficient delusion. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things. You can't pray enough prayers. You can't lace your boots up and do it yourself. There's no DIY to this. It requires you to recognize that your only hope is God's grace. And you are the closest to the kingdom of God when you realize that you can never meet the entrance requirement. So have you based your security, your assurance, on something that you've done? Or... Are you in need of a new birth that you yourself can do nothing to achieve? A new birth that Jesus says you can't even comprehend into a kingdom you can't even see because of impediments you never even realized you had. What are you to do then when that is your reality? When you are desperate and dying and utterly unable to save yourself, but you're not ready to be saved until you're brought to that point. What are you to do? Look now as we finally arrive to the answer. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus gives us the answer by way of a comparison to Numbers chapter 21. Do you remember the story? God had delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, and while the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, God provides manna from heaven. And while in the wilderness, the people grew impatient and ungrateful, saying things like, there's no food, and we don't like the food that we do have to eat, which doesn't make any sense. Or, I wish that we were back in Egypt in slavery. It's better than what we're doing now. They grew impatient and ungrateful, complaining bitterly not only to Moses, 
but about God himself. So God responds by sending a plague, this time not against the Egyptians that he had, as he had done so before, but against the Israelites. A plague of venomous snakes that bit the people so that many of them died. Can you imagine anything so horrifying? Walking out these doors and just seeing snakes in the parking lot? Not just one, like the whole parking lot is just now snakes. It's terrifying. People are dying all around you. It's like a scene out of an Indiana Jones movie, right? But it was God's judgment. And yet the judge proves to be the Savior. Because as the people start to repent, they go to Moses and they say, Moses, we know that we have sinned against you and we have sinned against God. Pray for us. So Moses prays. And God supplies a remedy by instructing Moses to place a bronze serpent upon a pole and promising any Israelite who looks at it, however horribly they were suffering, they would live. Well, Nicodemus knows this story. He's probably preached it a hundred times. So why should he think it's so strange that by the gracious provision of this same God, new life would be given to people infected by the venom of that ancient serpent in the Garden of Eden. It's a comparison. Jesus explains this is how God grants new life to people who are desperate and are dying. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up in crucifixion? To bear the full force of God's judgment for the sins of this world and inside of all of us? And lifted up in exaltation. Raised from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father as the glorified King. It's the answer to Nicodemus' question, how can this be? But it can be, and it will be, Nicodemus as a result of the redeeming work of the one who stands before you now, Jesus Christ. And only one thing remains now. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I want to be clear. This does not teach universalism that all will ultimately be saved. No, saving is contingent on a deliberate act, believing. But just as I said at the beginning, your faith does not save you. The object of your faith saves you. And here, the object of a faith that will save you is clearly defined. Not in Jesus as the worker of miracles. Not in Jesus as a teacher sent from God. Not in Republican Jesus, Starbucks Jesus, Touchdown Jesus, or Feel Good Jesus. A faith that is sufficient to save is a faith in Jesus as the lifted up Son of Man. The crucified, resurrected, and exalted King who gives eternal life to all who look to Him as the only cure from their sin. I believe in Jesus Christ, but does Jesus Christ believe? In you. Answer number one, only if you have been born 
again. And answer number two, only if you believe in Jesus Christ as God's provision for salvation. Only if you believe in Jesus Christ as God's provision for salvation. Both exist simultaneously, being born again and believing. Given everything that we've read in John 3, it should be very clear that the second is a result of the first. Right? The second is proof of the first. God is the author of salvation. And it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Which is why you can't even point to your faith as the one work you've done that has granted you entrance into the kingdom of God. Stick with the analogy given here. This is a new birth. A baby doesn't cry in order to be born. A baby cries because it has been born. And in the exact same way, you do not cry out to Jesus in faith to be born again. You cry out to Jesus Christ in faith that he was the lifted up Son of Man, reigning in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, because you have been born again. So do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's provision for the disease of sin that has inflicted you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for your sins and was raised from the dead on the third day? Do you believe that he is exalted in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father as the glorified King? Is this the Jesus you believe in? Then you have been born again. And although it is mysterious, this process of being born again, the result is unmistakable. It is undeniable. Don't base your salvation on a prayer you prayed when you were six years old. Don't appeal to your baptism. Don't appeal to your membership here at Mosaic Church. Don't speculate. Don't guess. Don't get in your car and drive away with your fingers crossed, hoping that you're just got it. You got it figured out. It's going to work itself out. You must be born again. And you must believe that Jesus Christ is God's provision for salvation. So believe in him. Tell him right now, I want you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. You are my only hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are the next words that Jesus says to Nicodemus. Do you believe that? You bow your heads with me. Our Father and our God, God, thank you for Jesus. Father, your grace and your mercy, it doesn't make any sense. We cannot comprehend it and we cannot understand it. All we can do is respond in joy. Father, we pray for our families, our friends, and even ourselves, God, that we would see Jesus as the lifted up Son of Man. We thank you for your Son and for the blood he shed on the cross. 
In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.